Good evening. I hope you've had a wonderful day today. Welcome to BVJ's Bedtime Stories. My name is Big Voice J, and this is a show where we get you ready for a great night's sleep with some old familiar stories that you haven't heard in a while. Links to every story can be found in the show notes at our website, bedtimewithbvj.com. Tonight we continue our story, The Adventure of the Priory School, by Arthur Conan Doyle. How are you, Mr. Reuben Hayes? said Holmes. Who are you, and how do you get my name so pet? The countryman answered, with a suspicious flash of a pair of cunning eyes. Well, it's printed on the board above your head. It's easy to see a man who is master of his own house. I suppose you haven't such a thing as a carriage in your stables? No, I have not. I can hardly put my foot to the ground. Don't put it to the ground. But I can't walk. Well, then, hop. Mr. Reuben Hayes's manner was far from gracious, but Holmes took it with admirable good humor. Look here, my man, said he. This is really rather an awkward fix for me. I don't mind how I get on. Neither do I, said the morose landlord. The matter is very important. I would offer you a sovereign for the use of a bicycle. The landlord pricked up his ears. Where do you want to go? To Holdenness Howe. Pals of the Duke, I suppose, said the landlord, surveying our mud-stained garments with ironical eyes. Holmes laughed good-naturedly. Yeah, he'll be glad to see us anyhow. Why? Because we bring him news of his lost son. The landlord gave a very visible start. What? You're on his track? He has been heard of in Liverpool. They expect to get him every hour. Again, a swift charge passed over the heavy, unshaven face. His manner was suddenly genial. I've less reason to wish the Duke well than most men, said he, for I was his head coachman once, and cruel bad he treated me. It was him that sacked me without a character on the word of a lying corn chandler. But I'm glad to hear that the young lord was heard of in Liverpool, and I'll help you to take the news to the hall. Thank you, said Holmes. We'll have some food first, and you can bring round the bicycle. I haven't got a bicycle. Holmes held up a sovereign. I tell you, man, that I haven't got one. I'll let you have two horses as far as the hall. Well, well, said Holmes. We'll talk about it when we've had something to eat. When we were left alone in the stone-flagged kitchen, it was astonishing how rapidly that sprained ankle recovered. It was nearly nightfall, and we had eaten nothing since early morning, so that we spent some time over our meal. Holmes was lost in thought, and once or twice he walked over to the window and stared earnestly out. It opened on to a squalid courtyard. In the far corner was a smithy, where a grimy lad was at work. On the other side were the stables. Holmes had sat down again after one of those excursions when he suddenly sprang out of his chair with a loud exclamation. "'By heaven, Watson! I believe that I've got it!' he cried. "'Yes, yes, it must be so. Watson, do you remember seeing any cow tracks today?' "'Yes, several. Where?' 
everywhere. They were at the morass and again on the path and again where poor Heidegger met his death. Exactly. Well, now, Watson, how many cows did you see on the moor? I don't remember seeing any. Strange, Watson, that we should see tracks all along our line, but never a cow on the whole moor. Very strange, Watson, eh? Yes, it is strange. Yes, it's strange. Now, Watson, make an effort. Throw your mind back. Can you see those tracks upon the path? Yes, I can. Can you recall that the tracks were sometimes like that, Watson? He arranged a number of breadcrumbs in a fashion. And sometimes like this, or occasionally like this. Do you remember that? No, I cannot. But I can. I can swear to it. However, we will go back at our leisure and verify it. What a blind beetle I have been not to draw my conclusion. And what is your conclusion? Only that it is a remarkable cow which walks, canters, and gallops. By George Watson, there was no brain of a country publican that brought out such a blind as that. The coast seems to be clear, save for that lad in the smithy. Let us slip out and see what we can see. There were two rough-haired, uncumped horses in the tumble-down stable. Holmes raised the hind leg of one of them and laughed aloud. Old shoes, but newly shod. Old shoes, new nails. This case deserves to be a classic. Let us go across to the smithy. The lad continued his work without regarding us. I saw Holmes's eye darting to right and left among the litter of iron and wood which was scattered around the floor. Suddenly, however, we heard a step behind us, and there was a landlord his heavy eyebrows drawn over his savage eyes, his swarthy features convulsed with passion. He held a short, metal-headed stick in his hand, and he advanced in so menacing a fashion that I was right glad to feel the revolver in my pocket. "'You infernal spies!' the man cried. "'What are you doing there?' "'Why, Mr. Reuben Hayes,' said Holmes coolly. "'One might think that you were afraid of our finding something out.' The man mastered himself with a violent effort, and his grim mouth loosened into a false laugh, which was more menacing than his frown. "'You're welcome to all you can find out in my smithy,' said he. "'But look here, mister. I don't care for folk poking about my place without my leave. So the sooner you pay your score and get out of this, the better I shall be pleased.' "'All right, Mr. Hayes, no harm meant,' said Holmes. We have been having a look at your horses, but I think I'll walk after all. It's not far, I believe. Not more than two miles to the hall gates. That's the road to the left. He watched us with sullen eyes until we had left his premises. We did not go very far along the road, for Holmes stopped the instant that the curve hit us from the landlord's view. We were warm, as the children say, at that inn, said he. I seem to grow colder every step that I take away from it. No, no, I, I can't possibly leave it. I am convinced, said I, that this Reuben Hayes knows all about it. More self-evident villain I never saw. Oh, he impressed you in that way, did he? There are the horses, there's the smithy. 
Yes, it is an interesting place, this fighting cock. I think we shall have another look at it in an unobtrusive way. A long, sloping hillside dotted with gray limestone boulders stretched out behind us. We had turned off the road and were making our way up the hill. When, looking in the direction of Holderness Hall, I saw a cyclist coming swiftly along. Get down, Watson, cried Holmes, with a heavy hand upon my shoulder. We had hardly sunk from view when the man flew past us on the road. Amid a rolling cloud of dust, I caught a glimpse of a pale, agitated face, a face with horror in every liniment. The mouth open, the eyes staring wildly in front. It was like some strange caricature of the dapper James Wilder whom we had seen the night before. The Duke's secretary, cried Holmes. Come, Watson, let us see what he does. We scrambled from rock to rock until in a few moments we had made our way to a point from which we could see the front door of the inn. Wilder's bicycle was leaning against the wall beside it. No one was moving about the house, nor could we catch a glimpse of any faces at the windows. Slowly the twilight crept down as the sun sank behind the high towers of Holderness Hall. Then in the gloom we saw the two side lamps of a trap light up in the stable yard of the inn, and shortly afterwards heard the rattle of hoofs, as it wheeled out into the road and tore off at a furious pace in the direction of Chesterfield. "'What do you make of that, Watson?' Holmes whispered. It looks like a flight. A single man in a dog cart, so far as I could see. Well, it certainly was not Mr. James Wilder, for there he is at the door. A red square of light had sprung out of the darkness. In the middle of it was the black figure of the secretary, his head advanced, peering out into the night. It was evident that he was expecting someone. Then at last there were steps in the road. A second figure was visible for an instant against the light. The door shut, and all was black once more. Five minutes later, a lamp was lit in a room upon the first floor. It seems to be a curious class of custom that is done by the fighting cocks at Holmes. The bar is on the other side. Quite so. These are what one may call the private guests. Now what in the world is Mr. James Wilder doing in that den at this hour of night. And who is the companion who comes to meet him there? Come, Watson. We must really take a risk and try to investigate this a little more closely. Together we stole down to the road and crept across to the door of the inn. The bicycle still leaned against the wall. Holmes struck a match and held it to the back wheel, and I heard him chuckle as the light fell upon a patched Dunlap tire. Up above us was the lighted window. I must have a peep through that, Watson. If you bend your back and support yourself against the wall, I think that I can manage. An instant later, his feet were on my shoulders, but he was hardly up before he was down again. Come, my friend, said he. Our day's work has been quite long enough. I think that we have gathered all that we can. It's a long walk to the school, and the sooner we get started, the better. He hardly had opened his lips during that weary trudge across the moor. Nor would he enter the school when he reached it, but went on to Mackleton Station, where he could send some telegrams. Late at night I heard him consoling Dr. Huxtable, prostrated by the tragedy of his master's death, 
and later still he entered my room as alert and vigorous as he had been when he started in the morning. All goes well, my friend, said he. I promise that before tomorrow evening we shall have reached a solution of the mystery. At eleven o'clock next morning, my friend and I were walking up the famous U Avenue of Holderness Hall. We were ushered through the magnificent Elizabethan doorway and into His Grace's study. There we found Mr. James Wilde, demure and courtly, but with some trace of that wild terror of the night before, still lurking in his furtive eyes and in his twitching features. You have come to see His Grace? I'm sorry, but the fact is that the Duke is far from well. He has been very much upset by the tragic news. We have received a telegram from Dr. Huxtable yesterday afternoon, which told us of your discovery. I must see the Duke, Mr. Wilder. But he's in his room. Then I must go to his room. I believe he's in his bed. I will see him there. Holmes's cold and inexorable manner showed the secretary that it was useless to argue with him. Very good, Mr. Holmes. I will tell them that you are here. After half an hour's delay, the great nobleman appeared. His face was more cadaverous than ever. His shoulders had rounded, and he seemed to me to be an altogether older man than he had been the morning before. He greeted us with a stately courtesy and seated himself at his desk, his red beard streaming down onto the table. Well, Mr. Holmes, said he. But my friend's eyes were fixed upon the secretary, who stood by his master's chair. I think, Your Grace, that I could speak more freely in Mr. Wilder's absence. The man turned a shade paler and cast a malignant glance at Holmes. If Your Grace wishes, yes, yes, you had better go. Now, Mr. Holmes, what have you to say? My friend waited until the door had closed behind the retreating secretary. The fact is, Your Grace, said he, that my colleague, Dr. Watson, and myself had an assurance from Dr. Huxtable that a reward had been offered in this case. I should like to have this confirmed from your own lips. Certainly, Mr. Holmes. It amounted, if I am correctly informed, to £5,000 to anyone who will tell you where your son is. Exactly. And another thousand to the man who will name the person or persons who keep him in custody. Exactly. Under the latter heading is included, no doubt, not only those who may have taken him away, but also those who conspire to keep him in his present position. Yes, yes, cried the Duke impatiently. If you do your work well, Mr. Sherlock Holmes, you will have no reason to complain of cheap treatment. My friend rubbed his thin hands together with an appearance of avidity which was a surprise to me who knew his frugal tastes. I fancy that I see your grace's checkbook upon the table, said he. I should be glad if you would make me out a check for six thousand pounds. It would be as well, perhaps, for you to cross it. The Capital and Counties Bank, Oxford Street Branch, are my agents. His grace sat very stern and upright in his chair and looked stonily at is this a joke, Mr. Holmes? It is hardly a subject for pleasantry. Not at all, Your Grace. I was never more earnest in my life. What do you mean, then? 
I mean that I have earned the reward. I know where your son is, and I know some, at least, of those who are holding him. The Duke's beard had turned more aggressively red than ever against his ghastly white face. Where is he? he gasped. He is, or was, last night, at the Fighting Cock Inn, about two miles from your park gate. The Duke fell back in his chair. And whom do you accuse? Sherlock Holmes's answer was an astounding one. He stepped swiftly forward and touched the Duke upon his shoulder. I accuse you, said he. And now, Your Grace, I'll trouble you for that check. Never shall I forget the Duke's appearance as he sprang up and clawed with his hands like one who was sinking into an abyss. Then, with an extraordinary effort of aristocratic self-command, he sat down and sank his face into his hands. It was some minutes before he spoke. How much do you know? he asked at last, without raising his head. I saw you together last night. Does anyone else besides your friend know? I have spoken to no one. The Duke took a pen in his quivering fingers and opened his checkbook. I shall be as good as my word, Mr. Holmes. I am about to write your check however unwelcome the information which you have gained it may be to me. When the offer was first made, I little thought the turn which events might take. But you and your friend are men of discretion, Mr. Holmes. I hardly understand, Your Grace. I must put it plainly, Mr. Holmes. If only you two know of this incident, there is no reason why it should go any further. I think, Twelve thousand pounds is the sum I owe you, is it not? But Holmes smiled and shook his head. I fear, Your Grace, that matters can hardly be arranged so easily. There's the death of this schoolmaster to be accounted for. But James knew nothing of that. You cannot hold him responsible for that. It was the work of this brutal ruffian whom he had the misfortune to employ. I must take the view, Your Grace, that when a man embarks upon a crime, he is morally guilty of any other crime which may spring from it. Morally, Mr. Holmes, no doubt you are right. But surely not in the eyes of the law. A man cannot be condemned for a murder at which he was not present, and which he loathes and abhors as much as you do. The instant that he heard of it, he made a complete confession to me, so filled was he with horror and remorse. He lost not an hour in breaking entirely with the murderer. Oh, Mr. Holmes, you must save him. You must save him. I tell you that you must save him. The Duke had dropped the last attempt at self-command and was pacing the room with a convulsed face and with his clenched hands raving in the air. At last he mastered himself and sat down once more at his desk. I appreciate your conduct in coming before you spoke to anyone else, said he. At least we may take counsel how far we can minimize this hideous scandal. Exactly, said Holmes. I think, Your Grace, that this can only be done by absolute and complete frankness between us. I am disposed to help your grace to the best of my ability. But in order to do so, I must understand to the last detail how the matter stands. 
I realize that your words applied to Mr. James Wilder and that he is not the murderer. No. The murderer has escaped. Sherlock Holmes smiled demurely. Your grace could hardly have heard of any small reputation which I possess, or you would not imagine that it is so easy to escape me. Mr. Reuben Hayes was arrested at Chesterfield on my information at 11 o'clock last night. I had a telegram from the head of the local police before I left the school this morning. The Duke leaned back in his chair and stared with amazement at my friend. You seem to have powers that are hardly human, said he. So Reuben Hayes is taken. I am right glad to hear it if it will not react upon the fate of James. Your secretary? No, sir, my son. It was Holmes's turn to look astonished. I confess that this is entirely new to me, Your Grace. I must beg you to be more explicit. I will conceal nothing from you. We'll continue the story on our next episode. I want to remind you that we're always on the hunt for great stories to feature on the podcast. You can email me, bigvoicej at gmail.com. We've got a YouTube channel full of selected stories from the show. Go to tiny.cc slash Bedtime. Don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps to spread the word that we're putting people to sleep every single night. And if you'd like to support the show, there's a buy me a coffee link on every page and post. Thank you so much for listening. Good night. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. (laughs)